Welcome to On Target, the podcast helping software sales leaders drive more pipeline and close transformational deals. I'm your host, Alex Elaine. Let's get into it. You know, pipeline generation is by far the most important part of being successful as an individual contributor. And then if you think about that from a leadership standpoint, it only multiplies. And so, you know, I think it starts with this thought that it is the single most important thing that you can do. And so the best sellers are always the best at consistently generating high quality pipeline. I honestly can't stress enough how important diversity, inclusion and empowering new voices is within any organization. That's why I'm proud to tell you about this new opportunity with a company I'm grateful to work with. Hire4 is a network that provides full lifecycle talent search and recruiting services customized to fit your needs. Whether you want growth, innovation, change or diversity, Hire4's team of recruiting experts will match you with the best candidates and fast. From sales to marketing, human resources and more, tell Hire4 what you're looking for, then sit back, relax, and wait to connect to top-class talent. Send an email to team at hire4.co, that's team at h-i-r-e-f-o-r.co to get started. That's team at hire4.co, and don't forget to tell them that I sent you. Hey, Tony, how are you? I'm good. How you doing, Alex? I am doing incredibly well. For those out there who don't know, we've got Tony Jackson on the On Target podcast this week. Tony is a great friend of mine and also an incredible sales leader who's had a record-breaking career across a number of different companies, such as the likes of MongoDB, Snowflake, more recently Sales Impact Academy, where he had a run as the chief revenue officer, and more recently as a senior advisor. Beyond that, He's gone through multiple IPOs, done some incredible things, and I'm really, really excited this week to dive deep with you, Tony. So again, welcome to the show. I know that you pitch many different companies out there throughout your entire career, but as for us to be able to kick off this week's episode, I'd love to hear your own elevator pitch for yourself in 30 seconds or less. Okay, let's go. Uh, My name's Tony Jackson. I'm a Seattle native. I have spent my entire career in sales and revenue leadership roles at software companies, several early stage startups. You mentioned a few IPOs. I was with Tableau Software through theirs, MongoDB, and then Snowflake, which was the largest IPO in software history. I think, you know, candidly, Alex, I've just got a passion for, you know, helping entrepreneurs, helping revenue leaders helping early stage career professionals, you know, either in revenue related roles or getting into the industry. And I think those things have kind of led to, you know, me serving as an investor, an advisor, an instructor of a sales program at a university, you know, those types of things. And above and beyond all of that, I am a proud husband and father to a, an 11 year old on Friday, baby girl, I still my baby girl and an eight-year-old son, and, and I coach their basketball team. So that's a little bit about me. That's incredible. Whatever you're selling, I am buying, Tony. That's a great pitch and an <laughs> awesome way to kick things off. So let's get right into it. I'm sure you'll agree, Tony, that really one of the backbones of any sales operation and, and broader sales master plan starts with pipeline generation and the importance of that. I'd love to really kick off with hearing your thoughts around the importance of 
generating pipeline and why you think it's such a, a critical ingredient for any broader sales plan? Music to my ears. So, you know, pipeline generation is by far the most important part of being successful as an individual contributor. And then if you think about that from a leadership standpoint, it only multiplies. And so, you know, I think it starts with this thought that it is the single most important thing that you can do. And so the best sellers are always the best at consistently generating high quality pipeline. And there's so many different ways, you know, that they can do that, but it definitely starts with that understanding. Yeah, it's a great, great point. Now, it's also one of the areas that, you know, for a lot of our sales leaders can be a challenge, right? It's being able to get teams excited and evangelized around a unified program so that you can actually drive pipeline consistently. So I'd love to hear you just talk through some of the key staples or key pillars that you have found to be really important or critical uh, for any sales leader out there that's listening that really wants to double or triple down on their pipeline generation efforts? Yeah, I think, you know, candidly, it starts with that that concept that, and it's not optional, you know, and it's not forced, right? It goes into your recruiting process. You want people on your team who genuinely believe what we just said, which is pipeline generation is the most important skill that you can have and the the biggest indicator of success. And so you don't want to be in a position where you're forcing people to do it. You want people to want to do it. And so it's your job to, you know, make sure you hire people that already think that, or you can lead people and help them understand that. And so attitude and mindset, absolutely by far and away, number one, you know, your mindset as a seller, as a leader is I am obsessed with pipeline, right? I have to be thinking about it at all times. And in that, you want to be really purposeful and intentional about the way that you go about generating pipeline. So I think, you know, from an attitude and mindset standpoint, that's the first pillar. The second is really that it's a team sport. I'm a firm believer that any quota carrying salesperson owns their own pipeline. And I genuinely mean owns it. So it will never be an excuse that, you know, my SDR is not booking me meetings or, you know, my marketing team doesn't give me good leads or, man, I wish our partners could do a better job of this, that, and the other, right? So you own it as an AE, which means you have to be able to go do direct, you know, high quality pipeline generation on your own. We could talk about some different ways to do that, but you also own cultivating and helping inspire others to help you and getting your unfair share of help from the rest of the organization. And, you know, I I would say as a revenue leader, I would encourage every CEO to get the whole company to think that pipeline generation is everybody's job in the company, right? It shouldn't be a problem for any person to say, hey, how can I help generate pipeline for my sales team? And so really I put the onus on the account executive, sales leaders to say, how do I maximize every resource that I'm given, whether that be SDRs, whether that be marketing teams, whether that be partners, whether that be the executive team, what you know, any any employee in the company, how do I put a plan together that makes it really easy for those people to participate? Because it's not their primary job, even though I say it's something that they all can contribute to. But how do you make it easy? How do you make it effective? And then how do you really make sure that you're giving back to those people that are helping you and making sure that they're being successful in their role and that you're helping them shine for the contributions that they make, right? And so that's when I say pipeline generation is a team sport, that's what I'm talking about. 
And, you know, I think thirdly, it requires this level of operational excellence, right? It's pipeline generation is not an activity that we do, you know, every so often or periodically, right? It's really a way of life. Now, that said, it's got an operating rhythm to it, right? There's a daily operating rhythm. There's a weekly operating rhythm. There's a quarterly, you know, you can make an argument for different intervals, right? But you've got to have a plan and you've got to have a consistent rhythm in which you do it. So we can talk a little bit about that too. So much to unpack in that, Tony. I think one of the things that really stands out to me is the the attitude and the mindset piece that, that you started with. And I think that's really interesting. I've seen my own experiences with some of my teams historically has been working to really try and create a, a strong culture around the one, the importance of pipe gen, but also driving accountability and some of the tactical things I've implemented in the past have been things like PG Mondays, where really the core focus for that day is actually being able to, of course, drive pipeline and then have some form of accountability at the end of the day. I'm just curious, have you had any specific tactical things that you've had to do historically to really get your teams excited and really bought into the premise of the need to do PG and a way to really foster an environment that makes it a slightly lower barrier to entry for them? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been a a long proponent of PG Mondays and, you know, coming to the table organized, you know, ready to present in front of your peers what your plan is. You've got to do it in a way that's fun, right? I think that's a really important aspect of this. You know, pipeline generation is supposed to be fun. Like, it's not easy, right? But because it's such an important part of what we do and because it's challenging, right, it should be fun to have the different levels of creativity and, you know, the different tactics that different people can employ. And and the whole concept of it being a team sport is you take a collection of individuals on your team who all have different strengths, different weaknesses, different ideas, different approaches. And how do you pull that into a team environment where everybody can steal a little bit of artistry from everybody else, right? And that's how you elevate everybody's performance. And you try to do it in a dynamic environment that makes it really fun and everybody's willing to do it. You know, all that said, I think to get super tactical, one of the ways that I've really kind of a staple of our PG program, you know, several of the last few roles that I've been in is this concept of a LinkedIn ninja search. And, you know, I would just say that when you think about pipeline generation, it has all of these, you know, things that you want to be thoughtful about, which is how do I find the right people the right buyers within the right organizations, your ICP, right? And how do I deliver the right message that is informed and value-based through the right delivery vehicle and medium? And, And I think the right delivery vehicle medium could mean what is the medium of communication, you know, whether that be video, voice note, phone call, email, whatever it might be. But also, who does the message come from, I think, is a really important part, because if we think about the way most buyers operate, they're inundated, right? You have to truly empathize and understand what is your buyer dealing with and how do you stand out? How do you cut through the noise? The easiest way to do that is for your message to be delivered through a source of trust and respect from the buyer, right? And so, you know, we use a tactic that we always call the LinkedIn Ninja Search. And I can break down for you if that would be helpful, how we do that, you know, at some point, if you'd like me to get into detail. I was going to say, you you put it at the tip of your tongue, Tony, and it feels criminal 
for us not to better understand what goes into that. I mean, what one of my next questions was really going to be around your thoughts around channels, especially in this current economic climate where there's more just overall pressures right in the market and people are having to be more thoughtful and considerate about how do they reach out to people? Are there particular channels which they should prioritize? So I'd love if you could uh, give us a little bit more, at least on the LinkedIn Ninja tactic, and then maybe just broaden your answer to talk a little bit more to, do you feel there are other channels that are more relevant, certainly in the times that we're in at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say, you know, going back to this idea of really understanding your ICP, it starts with like, who is the priority list of companies that you want to sell to, right? And you can do that at an individual level, you can do that at a team level. But the idea is, you know, not so many that it's, you're going to get all the results in the world every time you do a search on LinkedIn, but, you know, not so narrow that it's like a needle in a haystack. But the idea is you actually build a search of all the priority companies that you're trying to sell into and you bookmark that. And so you now have this, you know, so you don't have to build it every single time. And there's this little dialogue box on LinkedIn when you do that search that says connections of. And so what that allows you to do is see, you can plug in anybody that is a first degree connection of yours and see who does this person know across all these accounts, all these companies that I'm I'm interested in selling into. And so if I was doing this with you, Alex, like knowing that we're talking today, you know, I could say, hey, Alex, I noticed that you're connected to these specific people. And there's an important aspect of that, which is when I go plug your name in, I'm actually going through and I'm very thoughtful and considerate about, are these the right buyer personas for me? Do these look like the right contacts? And then I might come to you after I do that across all the companies that I'm interested in selling to. And I say, I'm going to send you an email, Alex, that I noticed that you're connected to like 15 people that I think would be really, really good fits for what it is that we do. Would you be willing to just look at the list of 15 people, send me a one sentence reply that says, hey, I could, yes, 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 no, no, right? You know, I could introduce you to these six out of 15 or whatever it may be. And then if that is the case, I'm going to do all the legwork. So I'm going to send you six separate emails that say, hey, Alex, I noticed that you're connected to X person at X company. Then I'm going to write basically a highly targeted, why you, why you now, very thoughtful as if it was going direct message that is of high high quality that I know the buyer is going to see. And I need that to stand out and be relevant on its own. And that's the body of the email. And then it, you know, the call to action is, Alex, would you be willing to help broker an introduction? So now what I've created is a high quality message delivered through a trusted source, and I make it really easy for you. So really the end for you is, hey, you just forward six emails and say, hey, Tony's a great guy. I think the company that he works with is, you know, reputable, awesome. I know they've been helping other people. And bam, I can get six introductions and, you know, you're going to convert those at a really high rate. So that's maybe like 30 minutes of work, an hour worth of work, and you're getting five meetings out of it. And so I think the other thing to keep in mind when you do that, when done well, now you, Alex, actually just earned yourself favors on both sides, right? Because I'm thankful to you for brokering introductions And again, with the assumptions that I work for a good company and I'm a good salesperson and I can add value to those five buyers, you now have five other people who say, hey, Alex, thank you for introducing me to Tony. Wow. 
Tony, I am a huge, huge fan of driving an ROI on time wherever possible. And when you're telling me I could drive results like that across my team in that kind of time period, I think that's incredible. And it's a really, really helpful example for everyone to take note of for their own teams out there as well. I'd be remiss not just to double tap on that point around the channels. It sounds like LinkedIn has been a backbone and a staple part of strategies that you've used in the past. Is there anything else that's really top of mind or any other channels that you've had particular success with that you'd want to call out? Yeah, I think it's first and foremost, it's always evolving. And so the key is just like be where everybody else isn't, I think is always the, you know, you have to be a little bit ahead of the curve, but whatever ends up working, everybody else will copy and then it becomes, you know, noisy and inundated and all that. And you got to come up with something new, but certainly video has been helpful. I think voice notes stand out. They're really easy for people to consume. I would say it doesn't matter. I'd say those are probably the two vehicles that are the most easy to cut through the noise, but it's really about like, what's the level of identification with the buyer that you can do? Have you done your research? Do you understand their space? Do you have a compelling message? That's really, regardless of of channel, that's the stuff that's going to stand out. And then just try to figure out where you can zig when everybody else is zagging. Yeah, I think that's incredibly well said. You know, I, I often sometimes deprioritize the channel itself because it's it's really about how you show up. You know, I came from an era without aging myself too much here where the, the phone was really one of the only tools and it was certainly a, a very close friend to me, right? And it was all about picking up the phone and making calls. And the main variable I could control was tonality, right? Conviction, some of these types of things, which is where I do like channels such as video, because you can bring a little bit more of that type of thing to life. But ultimately, the ingredients will always remain the same, right? Being able to, you know, have a level of research so you can come with an informed point of view, driving conviction and tonality where it's possible, and also maintaining a level of velocity that means that you're reaching out to enough people to give yourself a good opportunity at going high and wide. So I think a lot of what you're saying also drives a similar agenda. So thanks for expanding on all of that. I want to fast forward the conversation into to operational excellence. That's something that you touched on. And I know it's quite a broad area. So where I really want to start with it is more so more about your personal operating rhythm, Tony. We know that the space that we operate in is it can often be high pressure high demand, a lot going on. So, you know, if we got to peel back the lens on, you know, what a day or a week looks like in terms of your broader operating rhythm that's allowed you to work at such a pace over time, please just share and tell more. Yeah, I think for me personally, you know, what what I've realized in business in general, and then in particular, I would say also with sales teams is, you know, the wasted time in internal meetings is just, it's crazy, right? And so, You know, I would say personally over time, I've become maniacal about where am I spending time? And I think all of the main priorities happen to just start with a C. So maybe we can play off of that, right? Customers matter a lot. Candidates matter a lot. Culture matters a lot. Coaching matters a lot, right? These are the ways that I want to spend my time. And so I just am constantly asking myself, based on the way my day is organized, Am I doing activities that optimize the specific time window of the day that will yield the best return? And at the end of the day, how much time did I spend 
with customers? How much time did I spend with candidates? How much time did I spend, you know, truly coaching or building culture of the team? And, you know, I look at that daily. I look at that throughout the day. If a meeting gets dropped into my calendar, I ask myself, like, is this the best use of that, you know, 15 minutes, 30 minutes? I look at, you know, what time allotment are we giving? Can we make an hour meeting 30 minutes? Can we make a 30 minute meeting 15 minutes? Can we make a 15 minute meeting an email? You know, like those are always the things you just constantly like challenging yourself. Is this the best allocation of time? You said return on time. You know, that's a huge concept that I always think about. And then I think from a leadership standpoint, you know, the real key is inverse it and say, I'm going to look at my entire org and I'm going to ask the question for all of them. And how am I setting the tone for the way their operating rhythm works without mandating what they do? And so what I mean by that is like, you know, maybe I'm going to ask for two hours max a week from all of my sellers for internal meetings. And I'm going to be kind of a stickler, allowing some freedom for all the different layers of leadership and and some of the cross-functional stuff. But I just don't want my sellers spending time in internal meetings unless it's super high return. I want them with customers, right? And so prioritizing that first and then acknowledging that, you know, the higher you are on an org chart in a leadership role, you're going to have to tolerate some level of internal meetings that probably aren't the best use of time. I, I love the C's and the way that you broke that out. If you had to prioritize against those C's and, and anything beyond that, I'd love to get your thoughts on how you go about doing that because the threat on time is a massive threat. And sometimes one of the biggest precursors to that is actually effective prioritization and knowing when you have a clash or two meetings that need to happen at the same time, what takes precedence. So for Tony, how do you go about effective prioritization? Organizationally, I think customers are always first, right? I think that that's an easy one. You know, I would say that from a revenue leader standpoint, I might argue that candidates and, you know, that actually might come first because, you know, if we get into that topic I would say that recruiting, you know, people is the most important thing that you do as a revenue leader. It's kind of the pipeline generation version of leadership is recruiting and getting the right team in place. And, you know, candidly, if you are elite at recruiting and can hire a world-class team, everything else kind of takes care of itself. Like candidly, you could be okay at some of the other aspects of the role. And if you've recruited appropriately and you've got the right mixture of culture and skill sets on the team, they'll do it for you, right? They'll figure out how to be operationally excellent and how to do all the other aspects of the role really well. You could conversely be elite at all of the mechanics of you know revenue leadership. And if you have mediocre people, you will have mediocre results. Like that's just the truth of it. And so I think that's a huge part of, of the way I would prioritize is just making sure that you've got the right team, and you're spending time with customers, uh, you know, first and foremost. And, you know, you do have to be really thoughtful, again, the balance between not having a whole bunch of time for internal meetings, but also the right allotment of time to do things around coaching and development of your people and, you know, some of the team building stuff and really bringing the team together, you know, from a cultural standpoint as well. Yeah, really well put and well framed. I'd I'd love to peel back the layers on a bit more about some of the the staples that you have, whether it's a a morning routine, a nighttime routine, any particular tools or applications that for Tony are just the absolute must-haves and dailies. You know, how do you look after yourself 
personally to make sure that you're optimized for the type of work you do? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, not a whole lot on the tool side. You know, I just, at different points, I kind of re-examine what my daily and weekly cadence looks like. And I try to a lot, actually just use like a Google Sheet and I allot my calendar and I try to create a rhythm. I think the thing that happens is when you're in leadership roles, you're getting pulled in a lot of different directions. And if you just go with the wind, you're going to be all over the place. And context switching is an important capability to have, you know, because if you're in a leadership role, you may be in a customer meeting and then you're on an interview and then you're in a board meeting and then you're right. Like you have to be able to context switch, but to the degree that you can control it, being able to say, hey, from you know 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. in this two-hour block, this is when I do this activity, you know, and I build my schedule in a way that allows for that. Or, you know, hey, when I'm gonna join customer calls, right? Of course, that sometimes is out of your control, but ideally I try to book those during this time. And if you can kind of just build that cadence for yourself that you have a consistent rhythm it makes you more productive, candidly. So I think that's really the thing that I do the most. And then again, that becomes like a, every night at the end of the work evening, we'll call it, looking at what do we have tomorrow? How does that look, right? And every Sunday, how does that look for the week? And what do I need to adjust so that I'm staying true to, you know, that type of consistency and rhythm that I know is gonna make me productive and effective? And then even built into that is, is all the stuff around, you know, personal, right? Like, how do I make sure that I'm spending the right amount of time with my kids? Or how do I make sure that I'm working out? Or, you know, how do you build your life into that schedule as well? And, and you know, the concept of work-life integration is um, an important one to master. I love that. I think that you, to your point, you have to really start to find out the things that work for you to create your own individual personal operating rhythm. I know that over time, things for myself, such as meditation twice a day have become critical for me just to really clear the mind and, and press reset. For other people, I know it hasn't worked as well for them. So you just really got to find the things that work for you, double down on them and be super consistent with them to give yourself the best possible opportunity to keep a clear mind, body and soul, as, as they like to say. On that note of just leadership, uh, Tony, I'd, I'd love to just get some of your perspective around really some of the this, this skills that have really underpinned great leadership from your perspective and some of the attributes that you feel have helped you continue to rise and climb over time to the point where you've been able to run global teams. Can you just talk to some of the characteristics and how you've gone about harnessing those characteristics over time? I respect the most in others is just being genuine and and actually a great human, right? And you know, I think that stands out and is consistent across all the great leaders that I've had an opportunity to work for. You know, I think there's kind of two classes of people that are in leadership roles. And, you know, I think there are some who, you know, genuinely, genuinely care. And they, I think empathy is probably the underlying, you know, aspect to that because they really genuinely get to know their customers. They really genuinely get to know the people that they end up, you know, recruiting and hiring and, you know, coaching and mentoring. And they care. And their goal is to make their customers successful, not just in the context of like how they use whatever software you're selling them, but like, 
you get to know your customers and you get to know what their life goals are and what their career goals are and how you in a small way can aid in that, right? And the same thing with all of the people that ultimately report to them. And that for me is like how you build long-term sustainable, you know, great leaders. It's really about how many people can I elevate? How many people would say, hey, you meaningfully impacted my life in some way, right? And you helped put my career on a different trajectory. To me, that's the important parts of being in leadership. And and that's why you should want to be in leadership. If that's how you operate and that's how you're wired, you know, leadership is a really rewarding, fulfilling role. I think there are also a class of people that are in leadership roles that really don't care a whole lot about any of what I just said. And, you know, that's unfortunate. But you have to be aware of that as well, because, you know, there are some people who just really like to manage up, manage across. They don't really care about anything other than the context in which the people that report to them make them look right. And, you know, my advice to anybody is to really be aware of the people around you and understanding which type of leader or which type of person in a leadership role am I associated with? Because you're going to act differently. You're going to operate differently with whichever type of person it is. For sure. Yeah, it's a really interesting, broader topic. One of the questions I have on this is really how you went about really harnessing this skill set over time. You know, did you find that actually this was just something that was naturally within you and, and something that just came very naturally to you along your journey? Was there a mentor that, you know, said something to you and it, it stuck with you for life and became a core tenant of your leadership style? If you could just unpack that for us, it'd be great. Yeah, yes and no, I would say. So, um, you know, for me, my whole background is um, growing up, all I cared about was playing basketball. I was a basketball player. I was a point guard. I was a coach, you know, early. I used to coach basketball camps all summer, every summer from the time I was 13 years old. And, you know, my genuine being is actually that. It's being, you know, very much a servant leader. It's about uplifting others. It's about team. It's about winning, right? So I completely unintentionally fell into a role in sales and I never, I had every negative connotation you could ever think about sales and I never would have thought that I would do it. And, you know, it really clicked for me early that, oh, sales is not about convincing somebody else to do something for your benefit. It's about genuinely putting yourself in that person's shoes and understanding if I were them, how could I help them accomplish whatever goals they have in the context of like, you know, how I could be helpful to them. And so as an individual contributor, I started to put that together really pretty quickly and pretty naturally. My first go at people leadership in revenue It was very interesting for me. I would categorize myself as a great opportunity manager. I could tell my reps how to get a deal done, but I don't think I was a very good people leader, right? I just, I wasn't oriented around like, how am I aligning to the things that they care about and how am I, you know, how am I making sure that their skills are getting developed? And that probably lasted for six months to a year where I just, I wasn't myself, you know, I was getting really good at getting deals across the line. And, you know, I had an amazing mentor who I was working for at the time. And he kind of helped me unlock, you know, the translation of how I was as an athlete and as a coach and just as a human being candidly, and just helping me feel comfortable being myself as a revenue leader. And, you know, from that point on, it just became, you know, so much to me, I actually probably inverse too much and in, in rotated too much in that direction where I was so against playing the political game and I was so against 
the bullshit that happens a lot of times in a revenue leadership role that I just, I stiff armed all of that. And I only cared about, you know what, I'm going to show up for my people. And I really care about how they would describe how I lead them. And uh, I think over time you learn how to do both. But, you know, really for me, it's just, it's about being genuine and being authentic is probably the most important thing for anybody in, you know, in a revenue related role, whether that be as an individual contributor or as a leader. Yeah, I find it really fascinating, your responses here, Tony, because I think for many, it would be so easy to expect an answer that was maybe more to be expected, i.e. whether it's financial gain or some form of legacy or something beyond that. But just really your focus on being able to serve your teams, uplift your teams, empower your teams, a lot of that is clearly underpinned by your your sporting background, but actually is that premise that when you're focused on your team and helping to make people better, the result of that is often that it, it helps to take you towards some of those goals that I mentioned maybe just now, right? In terms of you get the rewards in terms of revenue and you start to build a legacy when you're able to help other people do the same thing. So really fascinating angle there. I want to move forward into the next segment here, which is really thinking about how to win more business, how to close more deals. And you spent a bit of time earlier talking about the importance of your people and the talent that you hire and being really a great recruiter. So it would be helpful to really start with actually when you think of the premise of winning more deals, you know, how much of that is a talent issue in terms of who you've recruited and what they naturally bring to the table versus actually your capabilities as a leader to be able to drive an enablement program and take someone really from A to point B? Yeah, I think there's always a balance. I mean, you know, if you break down as a, you know, how you're building out your org, there's a couple of pillars, right? And in the first, I would just categorize as like characteristics or some may call talent. I think I've probably referred to it as that over time. And, you know, I think the reality is there's a whole bunch of characteristics that really, really matter. And it's somewhat dependent on, you know, what you sell, the size of the deal, who your buyer is, how sophisticated the solution is, all that kind of stuff. But it kind of comes down to some basic things like baseline level of intelligence, work ethic, grit, right? That ability to just deal through adversity, coachability, and and just being, you know, life learners, right? Integrity, things like that. And so there's a whole series of different things to look at under that kind of characteristics bucket. The second is what are the skills related to the role? And, you know, if we're talking about AEs, it goes back to pipeline generation. Can you consistently generate pipeline? Great. Next is, can you run a flawless first meeting, right? Can you demonstrate mastery of how to prepare for, how to build a consistent framework, how to ask really great discovery questions, how to vary with conviction, as you say, articulate the value proposition of what it is that your you know, solution can provide relevant to your buyer. And then can you build champions, right? Can you connect with other human beings and truly understand what their personal motivations are, what their fears are, what their goals are, all of those different things, and then be able to drive you know, a very aligned buying evaluation process where you're lockstep with your buyer and you can navigate multiple stakeholders and all of the different criteria that you're going to have to navigate throughout a process. And so there's a whole series of skills that you need to test for and understand which are they strong at, which do they need development in. And then, you know, there's kind of this third category of experience that just kind of comes over time, right? 
personally, and again, you have to have a blend of all this. So it's not black and white. Personally, I've always leaned on, I want elite characteristics, right? I want a baseline of skills relative to role that I can work with. But really, it's my job as a revenue leader to build a program that can take elite talent and coach it and develop it. And if you do that, your rate of improvement of the team that you hire is going to be exponentially faster than, hey, I'm going to hire a bunch of people who have a lot of experience or maybe okay, like so-so on the skills and just kind of lack the characteristics. I've always leaned towards if you want unique and special or elite results, you have to hire unique and special and elite people. And I just think that there's an important component of that, which is special and unique people aren't the people that look the part. You have to look outside the box of like, oh, this is the profile of exactly, you know, the experience that we want before I hire somebody into a role. I say, all right, what can I learn about this person and their life experience? And maybe some of their other work-related experience that is a non-obvious translator that I know will correlate really well to success in whatever role you're hiring for. So those are the things that I think about when I think about people. And then it's easy. You hire great people it's pretty easy to build a program that says, hey, here's the skills that matter and we're going to teach them over time and they're going to pick them up really quickly. I've seen and observed and been the beneficiary of seeing you be able to look at talent and provide really what I'd classify as stretch opportunities where you can see that someone's got it right. You can see that they've got all of the DNA to go and be great. And I've observed you provide those types of platforms, not only for myself, but also for others and go out there and see them thrive as a result. And I think there's really something to be said in that, Tony, in a world that often you see many sales leaders out there just look for a on paper match. And over time, it just doesn't often work out right. You need people that have got that level of grit, desire, tenacity to want to run through walls, to want to prove something. I often talk about this chip on my shoulder syndrome, which has carried me through through for a lot of my career. And I've seen uh, incredible results from other people, both at leadership level, at field level and beyond that, again, haven't been the on paper fit, but they've had all of the other ingredients. They've then been given a playbook and they've been able to absolutely go out there and dominate. So I get really passionate about this topic and I love it. And I've seen you be a great person to champion this cause as well. On that point of talking about champions, I feel like I've done a bit of a segue there. Something else that I know you've been a, a huge advocate of is the importance of champions in deal cycles. I, I'd love for you to just expand a bit more about the importance of champions, why they're so relevant and how people can think about identifying, building and testing. Absolutely. You know, I, I've been fortunate to be, you know, very well versed and coached through, you know, MedPick as a framework for, you know, deal execution and qualification. And, you know, just candidly, the most important letter in that acronym is the C that stands for champion. And it is very true. No champion, no deal. You know, speaking of great mentors, JP Bolin is a, a former leader of mine when I worked at MongoDB. And one of the things that he says that stuck with me was, we don't sell software, we build champions who sell software. And that is 100% true for any of us that have ever sold anything, right? 
You've not sold it without a champion. Now, you might not have known that you had a champion or who your champion was, truthfully, right? But the way that that purchases get made is that somebody within an organization internally is selling that to somebody who has discretionary authority over money to spend it, right? And so the importance of champions actually helps you with every other component of this. It's like, if you don't really understand what the metrics are from a business outcome standpoint, you know who could help you figure that out? Your champion, right? You know, if you don't have access to the economic buyer, you know who does? Your champion, right? You know, who can influence the decision criteria? Your champion, right? And so if you really start with that as your premise, it just influences the way that you go about every aspect of the sales process. Starting with, if I understand what the characteristics are of a champion and I can better identify who I think a champion might be, well, that makes my prospecting a lot more efficient, doesn't it, right? Because I can think about how to get to the right person. When I think about you know, first meeting execution, well, great, I'm going to understand how to unpack through discovery, does this person have the characteristics to be a potential champion? And or if they don't, can I uncover who does? And can I find a way to get to that person? And so if you really just put that emphasis, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about when it comes to candidates, it's about empathy. And it's about, you know, really understanding the person that you're speaking to, what are their goals? And, you know, what is the environment in which they're in? And if you can do that successfully, you know, champions will carry you. And, you know, the whole point is, can you identify a champion? Can you build a champion to become your champion? Can you convert your competitor's champion to become one of your champions as well, right? And then once you think you've done that, how do you test? And how are you sure that this person is your champion? And then I think the last step is how do you leverage a champion? And that was probably the one for me that was the hardest. I think, you know, I kind of came into this profession with this, a couple of kind of core attitudes of like, just do the right thing and things work out and, you know, give more than you ever ask for. I was, it was always hard for me to ask for something in return, you know, but what I came to realize over a long period of time is that when you keep putting all these deposits and you're genuine in those deposits and you're constantly doing for others, well, at some point it's probably acceptable to ask for something in return. And that's really like, that's why, you know, in in the world of sales, you do all this from a champion building standpoint is there is going to become a point that you've got to ask for something, whether that be a meeting, whether that be for information, whether that be to go push something through on a timeline that matters to you. And, uh, you know, just being in a position that you've earned the right to do that is kind of what separates great sellers and not so great sellers. No champion, no deal. That's the note right there to carry forward, I think, from everything that was just said there. Great mini masterclass in what it takes to both identify and build and test a champion all the way through. Just as we move through towards the latter part here now, Tony, I'd love to just really start to unpack how sales leaders and field teams can be a bit more considerate about selling through uncertain times. We can't run away from the fact that, you know, we are in more challenging times at the moment uh, from when you look at the broader economy. I'd love to just get your thoughts on how sales leaders can be a bit more considerate about some of the advice tactics and enablement for their field teams while we're in these more challenging times at the moment? Gosh, I think empathy is, again, just like this consistent theme throughout the call. But, you know, I think I give it a two-part answer, which is, you know, as a leader today, you have to understand that you have all people within your organization who, you know, may be 
you have to really understand their own personal circumstances. And they may be waking up in the morning fearful that they're going to be laid off or, you know, that their spouse is going to be laid off or, you know, we don't know what people are going through unless you take the time to really unpack and uncover and understand. And so if you start with your own internal team, you know, and making sure everybody else is solid within your organization and then really coach them to do the same with their prospects and their customers. Because, you know, I think it's easy to get lost in this idea that I identify potential buyers of my solution and that is the context in which we interact. And we're only thoughtful about the things within their company that align to the solution that we provide. And at the end of the day, people still buy from people. And the reason that somebody is going to become a champion is typically there has to be a personal motivation to do so. And so if you don't understand what personally is happening with your target champion and what is the dynamic of the environment in which they're in, and if they just had to lay off some of their people, are they at the risk of being laid off? What's happening in their company all day, every day? If you don't actually ask those questions... First of all, they're not going to think that you care, right? And so they're probably going to be a little bit more withholding, you know, to some of the information that would be really pertinent for you to understand in the context of them buying and spending money on a solution. But they're also less likely to want to go do something for you, right? You know, when it becomes the end of the quarter, if you haven't taken the time to show that you care about what their situation is, why do they care that it's the end of your quarter and your promotion is on the line or whatever it may be, right? And so again, I just think being really conscious of, you know, what is this person dealing with on a day-to-day basis and how is that impacting their life, their career, the people around them? If you do that well throughout you're going to be more informed and you're going to have, you know, better deposits to work with, I guess, as it pertains to asking for something at the end of the sales cycle. Empathy, being considerate, taking account of personal circumstances, all of these things, highly relevant, certainly for the times that we're in right now. So again, thanks for sharing that. Tony, I've got one final question for you. Could have easily gone double the length. I've really enjoyed the conversation. But as we wrap, I'd love to just get your stance. And if you were talking to another sales leader out there and they said, hey, Tony, give me your best piece of advice, your best words of wisdom as I go out there and go and continue to advance my career, what would that be? Be an elite recruiter. I think that's it. That's first and foremost. Really, really spend, and you know, that I would say is a never ending activity, right? So I don't care if you have any open head count, go meet candidates, right? All the time. You get an opportunity to meet an elite person, you spend the time, you get to know them, you understand what they care about, where they're at in their journey, what their strengths are, what they're trying to accomplish, what are some of the development areas that they're focused on. And you never know when the opportunity might present itself that you're in an environment that would be conducive to them and their journey. And um, if you just operate with that mentality at all times, you will look up one day and you'll say, oh my goodness, like I have this network of just amazing people that I have like genuine, meaningful relationships with. And then recruiting becomes easy. If you just recruit when you have headcount, it's very transactional. I have this role with these, you know, criteria and these compensation factors and things that come with it. Does this work for you right now? Yes, no, maybe. Okay, it doesn't. That's transactional, right? You're not building an elite network of great people. 
And so if you do it the former and you're always associating yourself with great, great people and you're genuinely trying to help them. And sometimes that means, hey, I don't have the right opportunity for you right now, but I know somebody else who does and let me help you along your journey. You'll be okay. I'll never forget the fact, Tony, that you are the person who changed the R in CRO from revenue to recruiter, chief recruitment officer. (laughs) What a way to sign this out. Have you enjoyed the conversation? I loved it, man. It's an honor and a pleasure. And, you know, I just, I'm such a fan of yours, Alex. I think you got such a bright future in front of you. And I'm super thankful to have been able to play a tiny part in your journey along the way. Well, I appreciate you. Thank you so much for kicking off this new series of the On Target podcast. I hope that you've all enjoyed listening into this. Please be sure to leave a review, a five-star review, and uh, let us know your thoughts on this episode. I've personally really, really enjoyed it. So thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next one. Thanks for tuning in. Never miss a tactic or actionable insight by subscribing to On Target wherever you get your podcasts. And if you gain value from the show, I would love it if you could share it with a friend and give us a five-star review. See you next time.